The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we ask that you would be glorified this morning that you would eliminate all distractions. God, that you would allow us to see the truth and beauty of your word and that we would find our hope in you. I pray that you would remind us of your goodness towards us and help that to fuel us through this week. That we would rely on you and not ourselves. Because we need you, Father. Be with us this morning. In your son's name, amen. So for those of you that realize I'm really loud. Right? No, for those of you that have been following along in our sermon series, Talking to God, A History of Prayer then you know, as Ruth said this morning, that we're concluding our three-month series together. And we've talked and walked through many different examples of prayer where we see the people of God talking to God. And then we formulated and kind of seen a model for prayer for our own lives, how to carry it out and how to pray um, And Daniel said at the beginning of our series, and he said that he wanted to repeat this weekly, that prayer is simply this, that it is communication with God for those that need him. And that has been the basis of our entire series this last three months. And we started in the beginning and we talked through Genesis, if you guys remember. And we moved through characters such as Abraham and how he was honest with God. And then from there to Hagar, You remember Hagar, who was in an unfortunate situation, but then ended up having a blessing as a result. We then saw Hannah longing for a son and crying out to God, where God responds. We were then brought to Moses, and the conversations that Moses had with God, where the promise for the Israelites was continued. And then, of course, the tricky Gibeonites, who had somehow snuck their way into the family of God, And then prayed and God delivered them through the hand of Joshua. Which later then we saw David's confession of sin before God. And then we saw his son Solomon later as he prayed and dedicated the temple to God. Which led us to Daniel's prayers. His defiant prayers, right? And then from there, not too long after, we ended up in the ministry of Jesus, where Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And then from there, we saw a praying church, which leads us today to Paul in the book of Ephesians that we'll be looking at. But before we break down our passage today or conclude, I wanted to ask you a question. And this question is not our big question this morning, but it's a question that I wrestle with in my own head. Have you ever wondered what someone else thinks of you? 
Perhaps you have been someone like me that has lived a lot of your life feeling like you're under the microscope of someone else. And it's truly no way to live because I personally do not enjoy that that is where my mind goes when I think. And if I was honest, this has done so much damage to my life because I'm caught up in my own head and I can't see what other people think. So that's a lot of assuming, right? And we know what assumption does. <laughs> Some of our congregation who give off more serious looks when you are talking to them have always been so hard for me to read. But what I've realized in this is that some of the scariest faces that you see are actually the most supportive and loving when you need them. However, in our struggle feeling this way, we tend to analyze the things we do, how we talk, and even what the most minute and inconsequential action that we take part in will do because we're afraid that it will tear us away from the security that we've placed our entire life in. It's almost like this weird sense of false hope. The hope that if I perform well, then all is well in this world. Does anyone else ever feel that way? How about these thoughts? Do they truly care about me? Do they think I'm godly? If only they knew the truth about me. Something must be terribly wrong with me. I can only get so close because if I try to move close, it might destroy the way these people see me. Or maybe these people will disown me forever if they knew about me. If these are the thoughts that occasionally run through your mind like they do mine, then this is a sermon for you. This is actually a sermon for me. I need it this morning. And I was sitting with a brother recently and I was literally vomiting all my imperfections out on him as we sat together. And the peace and patience in his eyes as I just choked up and out every last drop of what I thought about myself. And the truth was in this situation that I had not placed my confidence in God. I had a misplaced hope. I was hoping in what I could do to fix my situation or to live holy. The friend asked me how I viewed God, and I told him so many things that really just unleashed more of my insecurity. However, this friend was not thwarted. He told me that God is a good father, and he asked me how a good father responds to their children. He mentioned to me that when my son Sam does something that I do not approve of, that I don't kick him out of the family but that I grab him by either his hands or his face and I pull him close and I say, Samuel, this is who you are and this is how you are to live and I love you. And that same response is how God responds to us. And after those moments with my son, we continue to build our relationship together. Right? I didn't kick him out of the family. In the same way, that's how God responds to us. He is a good father. And how true those words were when my friend said them to me, but how do we know that? And I'm hoping this morning to connect Paul's buildup in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, to show us how God thinks about us overall. And the reason we are looking back before moving forward is because our passage this morning says, for this reason... And I don't want you to have any confusion as to why it's written that way. 
Paul has identified and given us the reason why he is praying for the church in Ephesus and also what he wants to see the church in Ephesus realize. What I am going to point out this morning has nothing to do with you and what you have done, but what God has done. Not only what he has done, but why he has done it. This should give us a clue to not only how he feels about us, but also why his opinion of us should matter the most. Our intro this morning is, Lord, teach us to pray. This request from Jesus' disciples not only reveals their personal desire, but offers us a lasting impression of Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus' life, the perfect life, was a praying life. The intimacy and understanding between Jesus and the Father is available to every person who desires to know. We're still going to answer the question, um, how we know God is a good father, I promise you. But before we do that, I just want to give you just a couple factoids in Ephesians before we move forward. And one is that Paul has written the book of Ephesians. This is a letter to the believers in Ephesus. Paul wrote this letter while imprisoned in Rome. Ephesus is in Asia Minor, so Ephesus controlled many of the outlying areas outside of Ephesus in Asia Minor. So when Paul says later that he has heard, this should not mess us up or confuse us because the letter expanded beyond the original group he visited. So it wasn't that he didn't know who he was writing to, it's that he didn't know every single person that the letter was coming in contact with. It's because Paul was a good pastor and he was keeping his ear, right, to the train tracks. If you think about the country, so you know what's coming. So he's paying attention to Ephesus. He knows what's going on. Unlike most letters, there's not a heresy or teaching that Paul is correcting. Paul is literally writing to encourage the faithfulness of the people in Ephesus to Christ and pray blessing over them, but also to share with them in the second half of the book how to uphold oneself in family worship and also in body worship, being the church. The church was made up at this time of both Jews and Gentiles, so those of Hebrew descent and those who were not of Hebrew descent, so people of the promise and people that were adopted in, right? But it, it was crazy because up to this point, it was not widely accepted that the story of Christ was not only for the Jew but the Gentile, but it was his hope to unite the people together under the headship of Jesus Christ for God's glory. So now back to my question. How do we know that God is a good father? If you guys would direct your attention to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, if you have Bibles with you, I did not put this on the screen. Um, if you want to follow along, or you can just listen, and I, and I hope it just really blesses you. Um, but let's jump around a little bit. So I think that if we, if we see these words, it should leave us marveling at a God who thinks dearly of those who call on him. Ephesians 1.3 Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Could you just imagine a God who thought to bless mere man, imperfect man, with every single spiritual blessing from heaven? That's incredible. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. 
Before we ever came into existence or anything had been created, we were a thought in God's mind. He thought of us. He not only thought about us, but he loved us. At this point in the story, we don't even exist, yet God has thought about us and he has loved us based on his thoughts, not our actions. Isn't that incredible? Not only did he think about us, but he chose us, chose us to be holy. We are adopted in part as part of his family. We who knew nothing about ourselves or nothing at all really because we hadn't existed had already been chosen and brought into the family of God. Doesn't that speak of his great and dear love for us? Imagine a parent waiting for the birth of their child and a joy that wells up inside of them in eager anticipation. Parents think of who they are birthing and what this person might become, the purest form of love that we understand. This is God's position with us. Ephesians 1.7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Ephesians 1.11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we have not stepped foot on this planet, nor were we even a twinkle in our earthly parents' eyes, yet God has already worked good on our behalf. So while our minds and run, hearts run rampant on what other things people think, we should cast that aside because it has no weight to the fact that God chose us, and not only did he chose us, he did so in love. God has given us greater than what we have ever received here from anyone. So while people may not enjoy you, may not think the world of you, may be critical of you, God has stated your position before him, and that's immovable. So now that we have a better understanding of how God sees those that are in him, I want to look at our passage. And the big question I have for you this morning is, do we pray for each other to understand our position in Christ? And the big idea is, if we realize our position in Christ, when we are united, we will have power together. Let's look at the text this morning. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
Now, there are four things this morning that I think if we truly understand, we will walk more confidently and live in the reality that God has set out for us as a body. But this passage starts out, and when it starts out, it's merely a greeting, right? And a blessing for the church of Ephesus, because he says, I have heard of your love for God and for your love for the saints, right? And something that stuck out to me after that, like a sore thumb, is at the end of verse 17, it says, that you may know him better. How relational is that? That's pretty cool. So Paul is praying that the church in Ephesus would be given a spirit and wisdom of revelation that they may know God better. Not know about him, but actually know him. To be in relationship with him. And that I found absolutely incredible. So the next word that really stood out to me was the word enlightened in this passage. And it kind of made me shrivel a little bit. Because I remember when Daniel had laid out the sermon series and I saw it and I was like, man, I'm going to... I don't know that word. It just, it just, it's a weird word because we have so many things that come to mind when we think of enlightenment or to be enlightened, right? Um, it could be this idea of like emptying our minds or having like a thought just mysteriously coming to us, right? Like nirvana or like some sort of a, that just sparked in me. Or maybe like alms, like somebody saying alms or like worshiping in a temple somewhere, um, but that's not what he's talking about at all. What Paul is praying for is that the truth of God's wisdom and revelation would be understood by the people of Ephesus. And when I looked at that, I saw the verse Philippians 1.9 as I was studying. And it said, and this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. It was Paul's hope that the people of Ephesus could understand and live out what it meant to follow Jesus. And Paul has laid out these reasons that we talked about a little earlier in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, some of what we've glossed over. But what we are going to see from Paul in that passage is truly just a beautiful prayer for the people that are in Ephesus and even for us today. And if we pay really close attention, we're going to see that this is a prayer we need and our church needs. So what is Paul hoping that the people of Ephesus realize? And this leads me to our first thought this morning, and it is the hope that they were called to. In Ephesians 1.18, I pray also that your eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What is hope? The dictionary defines hope as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. It's one of those words in our culture that, in my mind, tends to get real Disney-ish. Because as I was thinking about hope and like how people hope and how hope works, I was kind of thinking of that scene in Pinocchio where Jiminy Cricket is like sitting on the windowsill, right? And he's sitting out into the night. When you wish upon a star. Because we simplify hope. Hope can generally be categorized oftentimes as things we wish would happen or that our lives would look a certain way or that we would have certain things. And when I was a boy, I was transferred back to when I was a boy in this thought process of when my hopes were that the Buffalo Bills would win the Super Bowl. Can you just imagine me at 12 or 14 years old just laying in my bed right before I pass out? 
before I slip into sleep just begging God to bring a Lombardi trophy to Buffalo, New York. I can admit I did that. That's funny. And each year I prayed that same prayer, even weekly and sometimes nightly, until I realized that one, that might just not be the will of God. And two, there are way more important things that I could be bringing before God. However, in pride, I held on to the fact that they had gone to four Super Bowls in a row, which no team in NFL history has ever done that. And even though they never won the championship, I treated showing up as if it was a victory. I was literally settling for second place. Second place was good enough for me. Who here wants to settle for second place? Every year. There was an acronym for it, for Bills. Boy, I love losing Super Bowls. And I've heard it. And at this point, I'm more reactionless to it. I'm kind of like, yeah, it's in my veins. I'm fine. This illustration is just to show us how odd some of the things can be that we place our hope in. And maybe yours isn't, isn't sports this morning, but do any of these things ring a bell? How about promotion, whether or not I'm recognized for a job well done at work? Or job security, if I can keep this job, then I've done pretty good. Relationships with our friends and family. A week ago, my sister deleted me on Facebook. When I asked her why, she told me she had to cut me out of her life because she saw me liking my other sister's posts. And right now, they are not getting along. Yeah. Our pets, we outlive most of them, but the jury is still out on like parrots and tortoises because they live forever. Academics or grades, no one asks you about your grades when you graduate. When was the last time somebody walked up to you and said, hey, what did you score on the 10th grade history test? You don't hear it. Or how about health? This is more of a serious one. I recently had a friend who seemed to be in good health go to vacations in the Carolinas, and while he was there, he caught COVID. And then he entered into hospice, and then he passed away, and now they're trying to figure out how to get his wife back. Yeah, so sad. Finances, if only we had a big enough nest egg, if only I could get comfortable. How about approval of others, which falls and rises based on performance? How about social media reputation? If that one person unfriends me or doesn't acknowledge my post, I'm going to message them. Don't we place our hopes in those things? We put our hopes in all sorts of things that when it boils down to it, they are trap doors because they offer a false sense of security and that when we have placed our faith there, it opens. However, the word that we are looking at, hope, that we see in verse 18 is much greater than all these things that we often place our hopes in because the word in the Bible, hope, is often linked to confidence, safety, and trust. And if we can't place our trust in these things that I just rattled off, then where do we place our confidence, safety, and trust? I did a little word search on hope in the Bible, so I'm hoping that by sharing these, it's going to bring you life this morning. Psalm 25.3. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 33.18. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. His eyes are on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. If you have been following this series, 
chronologically, you see a consistently faithful God responding to a mostly unfaithful people faithfully. Isn't that incredible? Keeps responding to those that don't respond the way he responds. Interesting. Psalm 62.5. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. If God is our hope, we can take rest in our source of hope. Psalm 137. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. We are given full redemption, all based on his unfailing love. It's because of his love and not what we have done. Isn't that worth placing your hope in? It's as if we all have hit the spiritual lotto. Because we just have to believe. Isaiah 40, 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. There is strength for those that hope in the Lord. Not only strength, but ability and endurance. Run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Recognize the power of the Holy Spirit. God is our source of hope. He will fill us with joy and peace so that we may overflow with hope. And isn't that incredible? So this made me think of like when my kids are in the kitchen and they're filling up glasses of water or chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is one of their favorite things. And as they fill it up, usually, it gets to a point where it overflows because they're just so excited to pour this drink, right? And it made me realize that when our hope is in God and it is filled to the point of overflowing, it's going to spill out on everything. And it will literally impact those around us no matter who we are around or where we are. And I know this because even the most random things get spilled upon when my kids spill something. I'm kind of asking the question, what didn't get spilled upon? Or what wasn't ruined? Paul was hoping that the people of Ephesus would see God as their source of hope. God is a source of hope that does not change because if you remember, he stays the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We need to hope in him as his hope is the only sustainable hope that we have. He is not a trapdoor. That we would see God as our source of confidence, safety, and trust. Paul was praying for Ephesus to understand that they would experience hope that is only found in God. This leads us to the second thought that I had this morning. Not only was Paul praying for them to understand the hope they were called to, but he also was praying for them to realize the riches of his glorious inheritance. Look at the second part of verse 18. I have four kids. I love, I love to hear kids. That's, that's fine. <laughs> Don't let that distract you guys. That means that we are continuing right our hope is that god is going to lead them and we will continue um ephesians 118 the riches of his glorious inheritance and all his saints and if you remember the word saints is simply another word for believers what is the inheritance for believers the word riches simply put means what someone has a lot of a brother told me that because i got confused by the word inheritance is something that is passed down when I was thinking of what I have a lot of in inheritance, my children came to mind. My children will inherit everything I have. 
I'd like to believe that they will want all of my prized possessions. However, my guess is that since it is a ton of sports memorabilia, they will probably want to sell it. And this is where it gets tricky. So if you truly know me, you know that I have tons and tons of autographed memorabilia of the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres. I tried to show Joe Berg once, but there was a point where he said, hey, Jake, I got to get going. <laughs> and I was probably only a tenth of the way through my collection. So one of the biggest issues in my thought life was, when I die, what are my kids going to do with these things? Surely Scarlett doesn't know the difference between an autograph from Hall of Famer Thurman Thomas worth lots of money or a non-Hall of Famer Glenn Parker that is not worth so much. I was thinking I might write a letter explaining how to sell. So to cut to the point, in order for my kids to access the money from these items that I deem priceless, they will have to sell to specific buyers. So this market is going to hinge on two things. One, what a buyer is willing to spend. Two, the place they chose to sell these items. So the value of their financial inheritance is conditional on geographic location. Listen, I could sell a Seahawks state all day long out here. Selling anything Buffalo Bills is probably going to take me a while until I realize who lives out here that cares. Okay? You guys all fake care for me, and I love that. Thank you. So I'd like to issue a public apology to Scarlett, Sidney, Sam, and Lola. I hope you have fun with all of that. However, there is really good news. And the good news is that this is absolutely not the kind of inheritance that we receive from God. The inheritance we receive from God is not conditional, nor based on a rising or failing market, nor is it based on anyone else's value. The inheritance we receive is based completely on his delight to give it to those who trust in him. His delight. The inheritance cannot be reduced, it cannot be taken away or stolen, nor can moth or rust destroy it. It is secure and set. What came to mind was this seminar that the refuge took part in years ago called Living Free. It was based around verses in the Bible that helped people understand who they were based on their hope in Christ. This idea comes with the idea of once our hope in Christ has been set, we have been transformed. That transformation is our identity, which is what we have inherited from Christ. And what have we inherited from Christ? Let these truths wash over you, because these are true for you if you find your hope in Jesus. You are a child of God. Look at 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We are his. That's who we are. It's part of our inheritance. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians six nineteen. Do you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? God has given us a spirit as a gift. It's completely from him. We have guaranteed victory. Psalm 1835, you have given me your shield of victory. Your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. Remember, those who hope in God will not be brought to shame. You have victory. We hold a secured future. Look at Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. The outcome that God has given us stays the same. It cannot be thwarted. We are seated in the heavenlies with God right now, with Christ. 
In this very same book, look at Ephesians 2, 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kind to us in Christ Jesus. And when I thought of us being seated with God, it made me realize how truly special we are. My son is adopted, okay? He is of native descent. That is why he looks a little different from mom and dad. So, while we were on vacation, we stopped in South Dakota to a place called Wall Drug. And being a cool dad like I am, I bought him an Indian headdress and a tomahawk. And I know what you guys are probably thinking. What kind of messed up parent gives an aggressive child a tomahawk to encourage their behavior? Welcome to my world. Well, anyways, when I gave these gifts to my son, he looked at me and said, Dad, are these the things of my very special people? To which I responded, yes, son, these are the things of your very special people. And while Sam's very special people is the line he comes from, I believe God sees us as his very special people. Like that line said, the verse said, his holy people, his set-apart people, his people. We are his very special people. God doesn't give us these things because of what we have done, but because it's the inheritance of those who hope in him. Christ has secured our inheritance. All of who we are today, who we were, and who we will become are now in Christ. We're secured in God. It is literally unchanging. When God sees us, he sees his beloved son, Jesus Christ, sin removed, righteousness imputed. He sees in us the righteousness of Jesus for all times and all ways. The inheritance that believers are to actualize in God is validated by what Jesus has done on the cross. This leads us to the next thought. Paul was praying that the people of Ephesus would not only see God as their ultimate hope, that they would realize that they had an unchangeable inheritance, but that there was power for those who believe. The power for those who believe that we look at verses 19 through 21, it says, and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in God, Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, for above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. And when I was thinking of power, what I thought about was, how is the word power mentioned in the Bible? And we see power because Jesus gave power to the disciples. And what did the disciples do? They went out and they healed sickness. They cast out demons. And all sorts of impossibilities became possible, possible because of the spirit that they had within them that we realize that the power that they're talking about is the power of the Holy Spirit. I'd like, to notice, I'd like you to notice the word incomparably in verse 19. This power is greater than any power that has ever existed. But what I find even more remarkable is that it's not only on our behalf, but it is for us. This isn't like a one-time gas fill-up from a friend. It's a continual power that exists within those who hope in Christ. When investigating this power, I came to Ephesians 1.13, and it said, You are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And it's his power transferred to us through the Holy Spirit. For those, that, for those whose hope is in Christ Jesus, who have realized their inheritance, they have power. That's amazing. When was the last time that somebody told you that the same spirit that lived 
and rose Christ, rose Jesus from the dead, was dwelling inside of you. Have you ever heard anyone say that to you personally? I was thinking about somebody being on the phone with somebody and like how cool it would be, though, at the end of the conversation. Now remember, Bob, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is also dwelling inside of you. It'd kind of be weird, right? But it would be powerful. I was like, I'm going to file that under code name Zesty because that's really powerful. We, we need that. We need to remember that, that that spirit lives within us. We need to be reminded of it. If God did not think fondly of us, as we were talking about earlier, he never would have given us the power from his Holy Spirit. Kids on the playground do not share with each other that they do not like. But they always give to those that they want to impress or love or like or, or are in relationship with. God loves us, so he gives to us. This should have incredible consequences. This means that no matter what trial we are facing, no matter where our hope has been misdirected, no matter what we find ourselves up against, God has placed an incomparable power inside of us that has the ability to help us and guide us through any and all circumstances. The very worst thing that could ever happen to us cannot keep us from the love of God because death has no power over us because to be absent from the body is to be close to the Lord. And Jesus, the one who has conquered death, through that same power, according to these verses, is now sitting at the right hand of the Father in a place of authority to ensure that that inheritance is true. What an inheritance and what power we receive from that. If this power is alive and well in us, then that means that we shouldn't live in fear of what could happen, but should empower us to seek God and cry out, trusting that through God's power that anything can happen. And this brought up a story in my life that when my mother was diagnosed with cancer, I thought I would write a mo my mom a letter explaining salvation to her because I love my mom and I wanted her to hope in Christ because being separated for eternity with her was scary. So I decided to take my mom down the Romans Road. However, instead of seeing what I wrote in love, my mother, my mother not my mother, but my mother, told my dad's mom, my grandma, so not even her mom, my dad's mom, which they were divorced, so that's kind of weird that they still talk. No, I'm just kidding. That's not that weird. That I, that I said the entire family wasn't Christian. Now, my grandmother, her entire life, denied the fact that anyone would have to be born again, and she could take it no longer. So she rallies my Uncle Greg on a three-way call, and she was telling me how what I said wasn't true, and while she's telling me this, so she's saying, you know, Jake, that's awfully rude of you to say. My Uncle Greg's on the other phone that's connected to mine going, judge not lest you be judged. Judge not lest you be judged. And they're both doing this at the same time, right? So if you've ever had a phone call from hell, this is probably what it would look like. And instead of reacting after they hung up on me, I breathed, I prayed, and I calmly picked up the phone, and I called my grandmother back. And as I talked calmly, I'm like, hey, why are we yelling? Why are, why are you guys screaming at me and not letting me talk? Like, don't you think we should all be able to communicate through this? Like, as I walked them through scripture, it ended with my grandma saying, well, holy beep. I guess I can't argue this book with you. 
And as a result, my uncle left his church that had preached that all roads lead to the same place. And he ended up going to a church that preaches being born again through Jesus. He could not deny the power of God through Jesus. He became convinced of the truth of Jesus. Then months later, my aunt went and became my grandmother's caretaker as she entered hospice. And only weeks before she died, she committed her life to Christ. And then she died of COPD. If we understand the power that has been given to us through God, it would lead to all sorts of possibilities that we feel powerless against. I felt extremely powerless, but I kept praying God had his way. Why did Paul want the people of Ephesus to realize God was their hope, to understand their inheritance that they received from God and that they had power provided by God's spirit? Well, I think it's because of the fourth thing, and I think that there's strength and power when we as a body acknowledge these things together. When we actualize and realize that God is our hope, that he has given us an inheritance, that we have power through his spirit, and we have all of those things, and we encourage one another, I think that it brings glory to God, and those around us notice that. His glory will be radiated through the world. Um, I'm almost finished here. Look at Ephesians 1, through 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. If the people of Ephesus would actualize their hope, inheritance, and power, then they would be living as God planned for them to live. If they committed to these ideas as a lifestyle, then they would be organized together under Christ, ultimately led by him. And this would increase power among the believers. They would live like Christ among each other and those around them would be drawn to God's goodness and glory where people would see it and be in awe. And I don't believe this is easy. I don't believe anything that I said this morning is easy. In fact, I struggled because when I first came to this passage, I realized it's easy for me to forget where my hope should lie. My joy rides like an ocean tide. I remember having a discussion with Daniel where Daniel told me he was happy that the Bills had won a game because he likes to see me happy at work. He needed to know what version of me he was getting. And he was joking, but I'm ashamed of that myself because while I laughed, I realized that my hope is so much greater. And he knew that. That, that was his way of joking with me. But where, where is my hope? What is my true hope that I have? I'm ashamed because the hope I have is greater than a sports victory or whether or not that I'm loved by this person or that person. Because God loves me. God is where my hope needs to be because he will not bring me to shame, as the verses said earlier. God is going to make me soar on the wings of an eagle where I will run and not grow weary. And he wants to do that for you. He wants you to know that your position doesn't change and that he loves you just as much today as he did the moment he thought of you in heaven. Isn't that incredible? What's even more incredible is that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead exists inside you, which means you have power over every present circumstance you're facing. That needs to leave us in awe of God because that was not based on anything we have to offer him, but his delight, his goodness, his love towards us. 
And if we became a church that labored hard in praying for one another to actualize our hope, to realize our inheritance, to access the power of the Holy Spirit, things are going to change in Bremerton, Port Orchard, Paulsbo, Kitsap County, Washington, and the rest of our world. The unthinkable and impossible can happen. Amen? So what do we do with this information? One, today I want you to stand in awe of God. He is worthy of our praise. It is his great work that makes salvation even possible. We will respond to his act of love by accepting Jesus' work on the cross on our behalf. If you have never placed your hope in God, Jesus, God's son, died for you, that if you believe, you would be saved. If that makes sense to you this morning, place your trust in God. Because he wants you to know that he is a hope worth investing in. Two, pray. Knowing everything God has done on your behalf means that he is absolutely approachable. He is a good father. He is not standing in anger over anyone here this morning. He wants you to come to him, failures and all, and talk to him just like my friend told me how a parent responds to his children. That is how he's going to respond to you. He wants you to know him as Paul wanted your hearts to be enlightened to know him. And the last thing, I have some slips that I cut up on the back table with this prayer in them. And I want you to make that the prayer of this church, that we would pray for our eyes to be opened, that we would have that wisdom and understanding to discern what's from God, that we would, that we would hope in God, that we would understand our inheritance, and that we would access the power that's been given to us. Because when we do that, remember that those impossible things will become possible. So we wrap up our sermon series, Talking to God, A History of Prayer. Prayer is simply this, communication with God for those who need him. Have we realized our need for him? Can we commit to talking with God? I can admit there are days when I set time to talk to God and I forget. But that's why we're here. We're here together, right? To reorient each other back to this, to remember where we should be and what we should be doing. We have had three amazing months of how people have cried out to God and God showed up in ways that have blown our expectations out of the water. God is for us, so I implore you this week to spend more time talking to him. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you are a good God and that you do not Leave us to ourselves. We thank you for the verses in Ephesians that show us how you think about us, God, and just the great things that you have done on our behalf. God, I pray that we would put our trust and our confidence and safety in you and what you're doing and that we would be those people and that this county and the places around us would experience your power. In your son's name, amen.